Welcome to the weekly sermon from Generations Church. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Hale. Okay, let's dive in here. Welcome. Part two of our series, we're uh, taking a trip to the dark side of the spirit world, and we're talking about spiritual warfare, demons, and Satan, and possession, and all those kind of things. The real question is, do you believe it? Do you believe this stuff? Do you really believe that there's all this happening in the unseen world, or is this just some kind of a, kind of a mythology that we snicker at around Halloween? And Well, if you are a follower of Jesus, it's very hard to avoid it because these topics, they're not isolated to some obscure book of the Bible or just one passage or two. Spiritual warfare is uh, central to the most central character of the Bible, and that is Jesus. Uh, he talked a lot about it. Last week, we t- showed how Jesus comes on the scene, and he tells everybody in Matthew 12, if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. This is what Jesus says. So Jesus points to this driving out of demons as the evidence that the kingdom of God has arrived, that it has invaded the land, right? Over in 1 John 3, 8, it says, the Son of God appeared for this purpose. This was the reason to destroy the works of the devil. This actually gives us an interesting way to frame the gospel message itself, the whole gospel, the good news. What is the gospel message? We could look at it this way, that the gospel is, in one sense, the recovery of authority. It's authority that was lost by humans, recovered by Jesus. The, The story of the recovery of authority, we might could summarize it like this. Number one, God is creator of all and he holds all authority. God is God. No one else is God. He holds all the authority. We're told that Satan was expelled from heaven for trying to usurp that authority. There's some some sort of insurrection that happened after that. That God then created the heavens and the earth and then he delegated that authority to the human creations on the earth. He told Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, to rule over it which isn't about the way we think of ruling over. It's not being a tyrant over creation. But in the sense of this word, it's more caring for, caring for creation, having responsibility. We're made in the image of God. We have responsibility for reflecting his loving authority over creation. And then number four, Satan tricked us into giving it all to him. Then number five, Satan now rules as the prince of the world, we're told in scripture. The prince, it's this Greek word, archon. It means a limited ruler over kind of like a region. It's like the governor of a region. It's not the king of the whole kingdom, but it's like this little limited ruler. He's the archon, the prince of this world. And then Jesus comes to reclaim rulership on our behalf. And so our salvation, we look forward to this salvation includes ruling and reigning with Christ, which is a fascinating thing, ruling and reigning with Christ. It helps us to um, make sense of a whole bunch of claims that we see in scriptures, things that honestly I didn't always understand when I was growing up, this ruling and reigning with Christ someday, because I was always like, well, God's going to rule and reign, right? God's the king. What, what does this mean for us? But in fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, it even says that we're, we're going to help judge the angels. How far out is that? But what we can see it as part of the bigger story, that we are called to reign on this planet as image bearers of God, representing his authority. 
to creation. And we lost that. That was the original calling for us to be ruling and reigning down here. We lost that. We traded it away like a, like a bowl of stew, right? Like Jacob and Esau. We traded it away. And Jesus comes to reclaim that for us. Hand us back the keys of the kingdom and say, let's get back on track to the way things were originally supposed to be. That's really the story of what is happening here. So now we understand why certain verses like this, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under what? Your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So it's interesting. So we're going to be ruling and reigning with Christ while he's crushing Satan under our feet. And so we're learning to exercise this delegated authority that God has given us to use. And he's given it to you for us to use in this life today. This is the big news. This is the good news of the gospel. So what does it have to do with this series? It really has a lot to do when we start talking about our theology of demons or demonology, how that gospel gets worked out in scripture and in our lives. So we could make a few statements regarding demons here. Number one, next slide. Satanic forces have been disarmed and have little actual power. Satanic forces have been disarmed and have little actual power. They've been disarmed. This is what we're told in scripture. They have already been defeated in a sense. They're this defeated enemy that's still sort of in their, their dying throes. And so, you know, they're lashing out. They're trying to wreak havoc. So we read in Colossians 2.15, next slide. It says about Christ on the cross, it says, Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. He makes a public spectacle, triumphing over them in the cross. So when Jesus ascended to his throne, uh, it's, it's the throne of his kingdom. He was, he's given this crown. He triumphs over the things of this world. He triumphs over violence and manipulation and the works of the devil. And truth now reigns supreme. And because that's where we see his truth, which is the self-sacrificial love. It's the greatest truth. And lies are defeated through the cross. The cross, uh, the defeat has happened. It's already happened. The battle is, has happened. So demons have very little power. However, they do have a kind of indirect kind of power, especially when it comes to Christians, which brings us to point two. Next slide. The only power that demons have against Christ followers is manipulation through deception. Manipulation through deception. If you have your Bibles, turn over to Genesis 3 so you can see this yourself. Um, Genesis 3, right in the very beginning. Now, by the way, a little side note. Sometimes when, when the scripture talks about Satan, it'll mention Satan. Sometimes it's talking about the actual person, the individual of Satan. Sometimes it's referring to demons in general, uh, the, the, the ones whom Satan operates through. So you get that sometimes. In Genesis 3, verse 1, there we go. It says, we, we, we can read about this sort of crafty, ma manipulative, lying approach of our enemy. It says, now the serpent was more, what's the word in your translation out there? Cunning, Cunning. subtle, crafty, crafty. Right? What's the, anybody have another one? Shrewd. Yeah. Okay. Good. So he's, he's cunning. He's crafty, subtle, shrewd. We're kind of getting a picture here, right? 
this clever, crafty. This is the first thing we are told in the Bible about this enemy, Satan. Watch out for your interaction with Satan, is what the Bible's telling us, with this kingdom. It's going to be very subtle in its manipulation. Notice what it does not say that Satan was or his tactic is. For the serpent was the most powerful of all of God's creation. He overwhelmed Eve with his massive force and strength, and he forced her to, right? That's not there. Why? The Apostle Paul tells us that Satan masquerades as an angel of light. He's a masquerader. Is that a word? And in Scripture, light represents what? Clarity. Light represents truth and clarity. So this is what Satan masquerades as. He comes as clarity, knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. Satan, he doesn't come out and try to jump scare you and roar, right? That's not, not usually the way he, he, he works. He comes alongside us and offers us some good advice, right? He comes, he invites you over for tea, and he just says, let me just ask you a few questions here. Have you ever, you ever thought about this? You ever thought about this? And he kind of pulls us off track with his words, he comes alongside. Have you ever thought about, have you ever considered that? Have you ever considered this? He's persuasive. You know, he, he appeals to our need to be right. We have, we have a need to be right and we have a fear of being wrong. Don't we all have like this sort of recurring anxiety if we're in an argument or a debate or something or we're in something like that of being the one who was wrong? It turns out, it's not like the worst news ever. You find out you were wrong. Oh, he appeals to that, that anxiety, that fear of being wrong. We have a craving to know it all and to have it all figured out. He appeals to that. He appeals to that. He says, I, I have the hidden wisdom. I have the hidden knowledge. And it's ironic because he deceives us by convincing us that everyone around us is the one deceived. Right? Does that sound like something maybe we talked about last week? Does that sound like, pride, the way pride works. It's the one, the more you have it, the more you think everyone else is the one with the problem. That's the way Satan works. And it makes sense because pride is the ultimate self-deception, isn't it? Deception and pride go hand in hand. So the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now this is an interesting passage. We won't get too far into this because this is kind of like one of those home life discussions we could get into. Uh, it's just like the passages last week. You remember when we, we saw a couple of really interesting passages in a, a, Isaiah and Ezekiel where it, it talked about a real flesh and blood figure. One of them was the king of Tyre, right? A real, a real dude, a person. And at the same time, the writer was referencing who? Satan. He was talking about the origins of Satan. And so it was happening at the same time. Here, I think we get we kind of have a similar situation here. The ancient writer is talking about an animal. He says the serpent's more crafty than all the wild animals. He doesn't say he's more crafty than all the other demons. It's more crafty than all the animals. And he's talking about so he's talking about an animal at the same time the writer is talking about the spiritual being influencing the animal here. So the Hebrew writers, we, we can't get too hung up on this. The Hebrew writers have no problem with this. They're, they reflect this multi-layered storytelling all the time. And he said, the servant said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat any fruit tree of the garden? Now, where do they live? They live in the garden, right? That's their world, is the garden. They're not running off to Kroger to get their food. It's the garden. So basically, 
the serpent is saying, so God wants you to starve to death, I guess. He doesn't want you to eat anything? Doesn't that seem unreasonable to you? Well, of course, that's not what God said. But that's what the serpent says. Doesn't that sound unreasonable that you can't eat anything from this garden? And he just starts the conversation off this way with a question to plant seeds. This is our understanding of how Satan works. Jesus confirms this in his ministry that the only real power that demons have against Christ followers is this manipulation through deception. Jesus says this to the religious leaders of his day. Next slide. John 8. He says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. Remember, he hates your guts. He, does, he hates you. Not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. That's such a great line. I love that. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Paul said this in 2 Corinthians. Next slide. For such people are false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. There's that light. He, he offers clarity. He offers new wisdom. Sometimes it's hidden wisdom, hidden, fresh wisdom, deception. Jesus says this in Matthew 13. Next slide. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown among along the path. So this is part of the parable. Jesus was telling a parable about the different ways that the gospel gets preached, and there's so many different ways that it just doesn't get to people. And, and the seed is the gospel. It's preached, the word of God. And Jesus said, sometimes the birds come and swoop down and eat the seed before it can take root in our hearts. And Jesus says, that's Satan. When people hear this good news, they get a little confused and like, uh, and then Satan says, yeah, but what about this over here? Remember, because remember that? Have you thought about this? And he plucks away the truth. He plucks it away. Later on in 2 Corinthians 4, next slide, he says, Paul puts it this way. He says, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ who is the image of God. So friends, look, this is where the battle is happening. We're talking about spiritual warfare. This is where the battle is happening, the battle of ideas here. This is the arena where spiritual warfare is taking place every day, every day. As you and I, we're trying to obey Jesus in making disciples. That's what he told us to do. This is what we're up against, this deceiver. And sometimes Satan will just, he'll flat out teach falsehood through bad philosophy. Uh, and, he, you know, he'll uh, come at people with an antichrist worldview. And that, that's the tactics of our enemy. Paul says this when he's writing to Timothy in uh, chapter 4, verse 1. Go to the next one. The Spirit clearly says that in latter times, some people will turn away from the faith. They will turn away from the faith. They will pay attention to spirits that deceive and to the teaching of demons. That's pretty strong talk there, right? People are going to pay attention to the teaching of demons. It doesn't mean it's going to be a Satanist who stands up before you and says, I'm a Satanist and I'm going to try to sway you. 
It's, it's deception, right? It's the angel of light. There's going to be spirits whose very job is to teach falsehood, to just pick and nibble at the truth when it's proclaimed and just kind of flood the mind with all kinds of other theories, things that will just overwhelm the truth with so many options, so many options. And what about this? And what about that? What about this? Until the truth of the good news of Jesus just gets drowned out, which is what so often happens today. The truth of Jesus gets drowned out. And sometimes that, that, it's that simple truth, just that simple truth, that come back to the simple truth of Jesus. We let that be the center of everything. That's going to be our guide toward the light. That simple truth of Jesus. Here's why Satan's so effective. Next slide. If he can deceive us into thinking that he has power over us, we will listen to that lie and we'll give up the fight before it even begins. Instead of taking authority over the devil, we will listen to his whispers. He says, don't fight it. He comes along, he just says, don't fight. You're hopeless. Resistance is futile, right? And we'll give in and we'll do what he says because we'll believe him. That is how the dark side wins battle after battle after battle without ever having to display any real power of their own. Why is there so much violence and injustice in the world? So much hatred. Why? Because Satan himself may not be directly able to do mass damage. But if he can deceive enough people to believing a lie, we'll be the ones who do the mass damage for him. All he has to do is deceive enough people to believing a lie. So yes, Satan uh, can be a powerfully destructive enemy, no doubt, but he will use deception to engage in destruction. Deception to engage in destruction. Uh, I don't know if you remember last week the little uh, video that we started the series with. It started with a quote, and it was a quote from a movie, and it said, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world that he didn't exist. It's a famous quote uh, from the movie The Usual Suspects. Great movie, The Usual Suspects. And what's so interesting about this movie, even, is it's a great uh, picture of how Satan works. The usual suspects. In this movie, there's, the entire story is overshadowed by this sort of shadowy figure, Kaiser Soze. Uh, he's overshadowed, and you never see him. He's, you know, he, he's just sort of like being talked about, and some people are wondering if he really exists or if he's really kind of too big, too, you know, bigger than life, too bad to be true, this horrible figure. And he turns out to be manipulating just about everyone in the movie into executing his plan for him. It's just a great picture, a great example of how Satan works, manipulating everybody to doing his job for him. So, so, in a nutshell, we can come back and say this. At least to those who know the truth, if you're a believer and you know the truth and you, you are studying the word and you know this stuff, to you, demons are not anything to be feared, Okay? So I want to say that because there's some Christians who fear demons. They're nothing to be feared. If you know the truth, demons are more like annoying flies than marauding monsters. Okay? 
They're like, ah, like the ones at the picnic, these things, that, right? They're not the thing that we have to be afraid of. They're not going to jump out and go, rawr, right? That's not what they're doing. They're more like the pests you swat at, if you know the truth. Now, if you don't know the truth, if you were one of the ones in the world who were deceived, if you don't know the truth, then their lies will deceive you into doing terrible, terrible damage and allowing terrible damage in your life. Knowing the truth is the key. Um, I, I think a great way to think about our approach to demons and evil spirits and this sort of thing is think about germ theory. Everybody know about germ theory? Right, like a century ago, they discovered germs. That there's germs. And it was revolutionary, right? Like people having, could have surgery without dying. You know, and people started like washing their hands before they ate. It was an amazing thing. And I remember even growing up, when you, when you learn about, you find out that these little creatures everywhere, that if you could see them, they would look horribly ugly, right? They're like, ah, right? You can go to the next slide. Or you don't. <laughs> but there's, there are these creatures everywhere, right? And in fact, you find out they're all over you. They're all over. They're like in your mouth. They're going in and out of every hole you have, right? <laughs> Everything you touch, every time you swallow, every food you put in your mouth. They're just everywhere. There's this whole unseen world of germs. Now, you can get fixated on that, right? And it can start to freak you out. It can start to make you phobic. And there's people who have an issue here because it's gotten out of hand. And so it can, de it can actually, uh, debilit it's debilitating for some folks, this whole idea. For some folks. Until you realize, huh, uh, oh, actually I can just live my life. Okay, they're everywhere. But they're not really stopping me from doing anything I need to do. Right? So now... Their reality means, there, yes, there are some things that I'm going to do different. I'm going to, do, I'm going to be wise about. I'm going to wash my hands, right? We teach our kids, go to the potty, you wash your hands, you know. It takes a long time to, for them to figure that out for some reason. But I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to wash my hands. If I go visit a friend in the hospital, I'm going to wash my hands before I go in there, you know, just so they'll be nice and safe. That's a good thing. I'm going to take proper precautions. I'm not going to eat that eclair that fell on the floor, right? I mean, unless nobody's around. Right? Come on. Uh, depends on which way it fell. So, but once we're educated, we can take precautions. Right? And, and we, can, we, can even, we can even use our knowledge of germs to cure diseases. But we don't have to be paranoid and fearful. I don't walk around fearful about germs. Um, germ theory helps us to be more healthy more healthy by being what? Appropriately aware. We are appropriately aware. We don't ignore them completely, uh, but neither do we obsess about them all the time uh, and allow fear to overcome us. We wash our hands, we move forward, you live your life. Wash your hands, move forward, live your life. And this is really, I think, a healthy picture for how to fight back against the tactics of the evil one, because like I said, for Christians, the only thing he can do to you is, is deceive you, Right? If you're a believer, about all he can do is deceive you or get you really freaked out in an unhealthy way, obsessing over him. 
So point number three, next slide. Knowledge is power, and so truth is our greatest weapon. So knowledge is power, and truth is our greatest weapon. This thing revolves around truth. It's very interesting. Next slide. Jesus says this in John 14. I am the way and the truth. I am the way and the truth. Jesus says I'm at the center of it all. I'm pure truth. I don't just teach truth. I don't just have like a book of, has some truth in it. I don't just point to truth. Jesus says I am truth. This is huge. Let this just get seared into your brain. Jesus is truth. He says, I am truth. I live it. I know it. I breathe it. I manifest it. That is why we say we want to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. You know, even when we got problems in our, in our life, those are real problems. And the Bible says we take them to the Lord. We can pray over those things. We pray over each other. But we don't fixate on that. We fixate on Jesus. We fixate on Jesus. We keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, our ears tuned into the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit leads us back to Jesus. That's what we do. Satan's primary weapon against you is deception and false ideas. So that is where the battle is going to lie for for believers. Now, this has some important implications for us as believers. Apostle Paul says this in 2 Corinthians. Next slide. In, In chapter 10, he says, For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. Demolish strongholds. Okay, so a a stronghold, what is that? That is a fortress. Is it a fortress that's being inhabited by the enemy forces? Uh, A stronghold, it's when I, when, I was, when I was little, my dad built, built me, a, uh, had a tree house, and the, over the tree house was this clubhouse. And for me and my friends, we had three or four of us that kind of lived on the block. That was our stronghold. It was our fortress, right? We had some friends from a couple blocks away that would come over and play with us. They were always the other side. They were the bad side. God was not with them. He was with us. We were mighty in his name. And so we would, you know, we would come together and we would be in our clubhouse on the little roof thing. And, you know, we're like defending it. We would, so we would blow a whistle and they would come running. Ah, it was awesome. And they would come. And depending on how good they, they were that day with their slingshot, you know, they'd be pew, pew, like pelting us with those things. And we'd be throwing rocks and frisbees at them. And then if they got too close, we'd pull out the BB gun. Right? Which you can't do today because you'll go to prison (laughs) and your kids will go to juvie. It's just a whole different world. Back then, there was no big deal. We called that a Saturday. (laughs) So, (laughs) but that was our our stronghold and none were going to take it. It says, no, no, what are these strongholds that Paul says we're demolishing? He tells us in verse five, we demolish arguments and every pretension. Do you see that? Powered by the destruction of forces, they destroy arguments and every, well, up there it says defense. But there's a a word that says, it's the Greek word, defenses or pretension. It doesn't mean like, oh, he's so pretentious or something like that. Pretension was this word, metaphorically, uh, they would use it for, well, they would use it in military terms for a high wall. It would be the high wall. On your stronghold, but it also was used during uh, metaphorically for an argument that you would use during a debate. 
So you would throw up a pretension was an argument that would stop truth. It was a high wall of argument that would stop truth. Sort of like one of those ultimate arguments or ultimate comebacks that just like try to stop the conversation in its place. It was a lofty thought. It's like you ever, you ever see people get in an argument and they're like, well, you're this. Well, you're like this. Well, your idea is this and this and this. And then somebody throws out Hitler. <laughs> well, you're Hitler. That's, that's it. You can't, you know, there's, you can't out evil Hitler. So it's sort of the end of the conversation. That's a pretension. It's the high wall, boom, it stops all other uh, arguments that try to come at every truth. Every lofty thought that sets, these are the lofty thoughts that set themselves up against the truth. And so he says that we demolish these. We tear down the lies of Satan that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. What is Satan up to? He's putting up these high defenses and walls to block people from seeing God's truth and spiritual warfare is how we tear down these demonic walls so people can be rescued. We are tearing down walls that, so people can be rescued. What does it say? And we, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Now, sometimes that verse is, is used for our own individual thoughts. Um, you know, I'm having a bad thought, so I'm going to take it captive. And we can definitely use it for that. That's good. We can use the verse that way, but the context, if you look at the context here, Paul's primary emphasis here is going, is going out there into the world and taking captive those thoughts that are trying to fight against Jesus in the realm of ideas, the knowledge of God, trying to fight against the knowledge of Jesus, the knowledge of God. I mean, there are so many crazy ideas out there, right, that just get in the way of people seeing Jesus clearly. Right? So many. And a lot of those ideas are just blatant lies that Satan spreads to deceive people. Just blatant lies. A lot of them are silly religious ideas that religious people spread that, that actually become unnecessary roadblocks to people seeing Jesus. Anything that is a high wall roadblock to people seeing Jesus is what we're talking about here. It doesn't belong. Now, this is critical. Next slide. Let's look at this together. Being people of truth doesn't mean fixating on ways people read scripture differently than we do. Because a lot of times that's the first place we go to. We want to be people of truth. So we need to find people who believe differently than we do and fix them. But rather, being people of truth is keeping our focus on Jesus, who is the truth, and becoming more like him. Being people of truth is about focusing on Jesus, becoming more like him. Being people of truth doesn't mean we become doctrine Nazis, ready to crucify any among us who might have a different take on a scripture or something like that, or a verse. Remember, you know, we say this all the time, we can walk in unity, we can walk in unity without agreeing on every little thing. We, we can do this. What, what being people of truth does what it means is that we become hyper-vigilant at focusing on Jesus. Jesus is truth. Our doctrinal opinion is not ultimate truth. Jesus is ultimate truth. 
right? Truth is not a doctrine. It is a person. That is why our faith is not in a doctrine. Our faith is in a person. Our faith is in Jesus. He is our truth. He is our truth. And that's how we can walk in unity and not agree on every little thing, right? He is our truth. We become hypervigilant at focusing on Jesus, keeping our eyes on Jesus, becoming more like him every day in everything that we do and say. Become more, you want to be a person of truth? Become more like Jesus. Look at him and become more like him. There's, that's where I'm heading. That's where I'm going. I'm going to be more like Jesus. You know, a huge mark of maturity, and, I, and I'm having to learn this too, is learning to be a person of truth and humility. We can be both. We can be a person of truth and humility. And if we're looking to Jesus as the personification of truth itself, we're going to be more loving to other people, sure. But here's something else. If you are looking to Jesus, you're seeking to be more like him, you're becoming more intimate with him every day. I mean, you know Jesus. You're not just, just learning about Jesus, but you know Jesus. You're going to be more sensitive to when something does sound off in its content or its character, Okay? You will. You'll start, to, you'll start to be more discerning in these things. We'll be able to see or hear. When we, we'll be able to, to see or hear something and go, you know what, that doesn't seem like what I see in the heart of Christ. You will be more discerning the more you're trying to be like Jesus. So standing up against the lies of, of Satan. It can be tiring work, this, this spiritual warfare, but that's our calling, which brings us to our fourth point. Next, next point. Next slide. Every believer was created for the battle and is responsible for being prepared for it. We're all created for the battle. Don't ever get lulled into thinking you were created to be comfortable. You were created just to have a nice life and provide for yourself. You were created for a battle. It's our responsibility. In Ephesians 6, the Apostle Paul describes the way that we equip ourselves in the spirit and he compares it to spiritual armor. There's a lot of spiritual warfare, military type of language, even for people who are sort of, you know, some of us are kind of uncomfortable with a lot of like violent warfare language. It's right there. He compares it to armor that we put on one piece at a time, but it, it also means all the pieces work together. And in verse 10, see right there, finally, by strength, be strengthened by the Lord and his powerful strength. Put on God's armor so that you can make a stand against the tricks of the devil. Paul describes it as putting on truth, putting on justice, which is righteousness, putting on the shoes that you shore up so you can share the gospel with others, robing yourself with salvation, having the sword of the spirit, the word of God. Now, I'm not going to re-preach this message because dad actually preached an incredible message on this just two, two or three months ago in August. And so I encourage every single one of you, make, go back and listen to the podcast of this message that he spoke about and just insert it right here because um, it was awesome. You, you can hardly get a better synopsis of how to live according to your purpose in the midst of spiritual warfare to be a person who knows who they were created for the battle than this passage, Ephesians 6 and verses 10 through 20. We'll talk a little bit more about this in our home life groups this week too. But we put on the armor of God so that we can exercise the authority he's given us. He's given us this authority, but there's something we do. And that, that's what I want to point, that's the only other thing I want to point out about this verse extra, is that Paul is talking to Christians. You notice that? 
This is written to the church in Corinth. He's talking to Christians here, and he's telling them to do... So he's not talking to sinners and telling them, sinners, you need to, you know, get saved so you can put on the armor of God. He's talking to the church, and he's saying, do this. So they're saved, they're new creations, but apparently it's not enough to just be new. You have to know that you've been made new. This armor of God isn't something we wake up with every morning, already put on. Isn't that interesting? We have to put it on. So you have a role to play in spiritual warfare. And here's the thing, to the extent that you don't know what that role is, or you don't even know the weapons at your disposal, or that you've been called to a mission, you are at risk for being manipulated by the enemy. If you don't understand the role you play, you're at risk for being manipulated. Now, Satan might not come along and convince you to give up on God or to like start worshiping the devil. He might not do that, but he would be happy for you to just lay down your weapons, for you to just walk away from the battle because then you're no longer a threat to him. And you're no longer capable of living a life of consequence and being a blessing to others if he can convince you of that. Living in ignorance can lead you away from the truth and it can allow an enemy who's already been defeated to beat you up with his tricks. He's already been defeated and he can beat you up if he can get you to just lay down your arms and walk away. Notice that's all the devil really has. What's it say? It says, so you can stand against his tricks, schemes, some of your Bibles might say. Tricks, that's all he's got. Not his overwhelming, marauding power. It doesn't say that, does it? He's a trickster. He's the sneaky one. And deceiving you into not even entering the battle is his only way to defeat Christians. I know I'm a little bit of a broken record this morning, but I I want us to understand that. That's the only way he can beat you. Don't enter the battle. A battle which has already been won for you. There's one other way he can beat you, I will say this, is getting you equipped for the wrong battle. Which brings us to our final point, number five. Next slide. Victory requires distinguishing our enemy from the object of rescue. Don't ever mistake your enemy for the object of your rescue. Paul warns us in Ephesians 6, back back in that same scripture in verse 12. Next slide. We aren't fighting against human enemies, but against rulers, authorities, forces of cosmic darkness, spiritual powers of evil in the heavens. One One of the greatest mistakes Christians can make in spiritual warfare is jumping into a battle they have been told not to wage fighting the wrong battle, the battle against people. How do we do that? That's when we get preoccupied with defending the gospel. That's nowhere in scripture does it say defend the gospel. Defending the faith, defend the church, defend God. God doesn't need us to come to his defense. He's all good, right? He is our rescuer, not the other way around. He's our rescuer. So if we're deceived into thinking the battle is about defending the faith against the pagans, you know what? We're going to have utterly missed the point of our lives. And meanwhile, the pagans are all going to hell. Right? Because we're like this rescue team who completely mistook the prisoners for the enemy. 
Or like SEAL Team 6 comes back, did you get the prisoners? Yeah, we shot them all. <laughs> Say, what, what? Right? We've completely missed the point of our mission. Next slide. Know your enemy. Love your neighbor. Know your enemy. It's the whole point of this message today. Is know your enemy. Know the way he works. Know your enemy. Love your neighbor. Don't mistake those two things. There's a verse in James chapter 4. Next slide. There it is. I've always looked to this, and this is a great verse, and I've always looked to this as a, as a rallying cry for spiritual warfare. But I have to confess, just to be honest with you, I've only recently noticed the entire passage that it's a part of. Next slide. It says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. And he, goes, he talks about that some. And then in verse 10, he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. Humble yourselves. Are you detecting a pattern? Verse 11, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. And he talks about that for a while. And he says, who are you to judge your neighbor? This is important. We are given this very good news to resist the devil and he will flee. But that is useless if we do not acknowledge the unmistakable call to humility that surrounds that statement. This whole thing is wrapped in a gift of humility that we have to offer each other. Spiritual warriors, we are men and women of humility. It is in Jesus' name we pray, not our own. The devil don't care if we come to him in our name. He laughs at that. Our authority over Satan is completely empowered by God. And that authority is rendered useless if we allow pride and strife to infect our armor. But if we know our true identity, fellow sons and daughters of the king, image bearers of a greater kingdom, my friends, there is no power in hell or earth that can stop us. Amen? There's nothing that can stand against the name you've been given if you know your identity. So I want to pray. I want to pray for us this morning that we're not paralyzed by fear. I pray that we are not victims of ignorance or Satan's lies or deception, but that we are equipped to stand joyfully. This is a joyful battle, a joyful battle. We can stand and we can fight against the dark side. How? By focusing on Christ, who is truth itself, continually immersing ourselves in him, and as we become more like Jesus, then it's easier to recognize the lies of the devil. It's easier to see his deception because we are intimately connected with Jesus. Intimately connected. And this is going to be foundational for us as we move forward in, in, discuss, in this discussion about spiritual warfare. Being washed in Christ who is the truth. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the light of Christ 
the center of history. I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict our hearts and draw us toward Jesus today, Father God, in a way that gives us boldness, Lord, that increases our joy and our desire, but also remind us of our call to humility. I thank you, Lord God, that that name that is above every name conquers our fears so we don't have to be distracted by the lies of the enemy in Jesus' name. I pray that we would be a people whose hearts are being continually grounded in the love of Jesus. As we live that out here in our very own community, I pray that we would be like a lighthouse, Generations Church, a lighthouse, a place where others can come and experience that light of love and clarity that only Jesus brings. I thank you, Lord, that together we might see the darkness pushed back in our community and in the lives of the people here today. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name, the name of Jesus, our King, we pray. Amen. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you for listening. Be sure to visit gchurch.net for more information about this podcast and other resources.